Good afternoon. This is the sixth session in our series, A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And before we dive into the lecture for tonight, we're going to do something a little different. We have the great privilege of welcoming uh, one of our brothers in Christ, Dylan Krieger, and one of our sisters in Christ, Spencer Spears, both of whom um, are in the LGBTQ community. Uh, Spencer's my daughter, and I love her so much. And uh, she just, those of you who don't know her, know her, I'm so sorry. Sucks being you. Um, Spencer, you're such a delight to me and to your mother. And our church is really honored that you would come and, and talk with us tonight. Our other guest arriving any moment um, is Dylan, Dylan Krieger. He started attending Incarnation <coughs> back in 2015 when he was a college student at JMU. He graduated in 2018 with a Bachelor's of Arts in Writing and Composition. And then in 2021, he graduated from JMU again with an MA in Writing and Composition. And now he's an adjunct professor of first-year writing at JMU. So, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and do the lecture now. They were going to talk first. I'm going to go ahead and do the lecture now. And when Dylan, and Dylan gets here, then he and Spencer are going to come up. And they're going to tell just a little bit of their story. And then... Um, they're going to come back all of the, the remaining weeks of the series, and they'll be a part of our Q&A each week. So, all right, we'll come back to, to Dylan and Spencer. All right. A significant part of what we're doing in this whole series is that we're trying to understand the Christian vision of sexual flourishing. Last week, we looked at the purposes of sex, that, that the purpose of sex is what God put into it in the very beginning with creation. And one of the things we saw last week is it's good to think about sex with the grain of the universe. This week, we're shifting our focus to sex that goes against the grain of the universe, disordered sex. And to do that, I want us to back up for just a moment, and I want us to imagine something that's true. This is uh, something that happened 1,971 years ago, all the way back to the year A.D. 51, when the Apostle Paul staggered toward the city of Corinth after months of being abused, beaten, Imprisoned, starved, and chased, he arrives to Corinth and he is physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. <coughs> he's run out of money and he's all alone. Now, as Paul approached this port city, what he would have done is he would have seen looming over the town the massive Acra Corinth. 
It's this 1,800-foot kind of mountainous cliff that rises over the city. And on top of this 1,800-foot rock was a temple to Aphrodite towering over Corinth. So hobbling into the city, Paul would have been first confronted by that. And then he would have been confronted by the bewildering noise of power and commerce. And so just imagine in your mind, see him making his way into the city, the center of the town. He's surrounded (coughs) by a cacophony of temples and markets and brothels and merchant stalls and public offices. So just imagine in your mind's eye this solitary missionary creeping along into such an overwhelming cityscape. And like many of the other cities in the Roman Empire, this city had a tremendous social imbalance. There are only a few rich people and Everyone else is either grievously poor or illiterate slaves. In fact, the majority of the population in the Roman cities during the High Roman Empire, more than 50% of every city were slaves. And and so (coughs) the reason this matters for tonight is because when it comes to sex in the world where Christianity came onto the scene, your sex life was determined by your place in the social fabric. For example, if you were a free woman, the rules about sex were hard and fast. If you were a woman that was free, you were not a slave. In a society where the average life expectancy was 24 or 25 years, that's the average lifespan, the demands of reproduction on women were urgent and unavoidable. Marriage came early. The legal age for marriage was 12 years old. Most girls married in their mid-teens. The very highest class, the most elite, the most wealthy, the most powerful, they were able to hold off marriage until their late teens. And if you were a free woman in this culture, your highest priority was modesty. Because in that culture, modesty was how you made it absolutely clear to everyone that your babies belonged to your husband. Girls were to be virgins when they married, and then there must be no suspicion whatsoever that they were ever with another man. In this culture, ancient women, in the words of the classical historian Kyle Harper, quote, lived every moment in a high-stakes game of suspicious observation. Your job was to produce babies for the state. Rome Rome needed citizens and soldiers. And so modesty was the one glory of the free woman. Now, if you were a freeborn man, the rules were different. The code of masculinity hated any hint of men acting feminine or passive or soft. And nobody ever imagined 
that a man was going to be chaste. In fact, there is not even a word in Latin or Greek for a male virgin. There's not even a word for it. Doesn't exist. The rule for men was not purity. It was domination and moderation. Your primary job as a freeborn man in the Roman Empire was to show that you were in control. But even then, no one expected that among boys. No one expected moderation among boys when they hit puberty until they were in their mid-20s. You see, most men didn't marry until they were in their mid to late 20s. And at the beginning of puberty, thanks, thanks, Keith. And the widespread cultural view was that boys at the beginning of puberty it would be impossible and unhealthy to regulate their sex life. The most that could be hoped for for a teenage boy in this frat, I'm sorry, not frat, <laughs> in this frantic period was that he would bring no harm to himself. And then when a boy was in his early 20s, it was expected that he would cool off and ease into a more respectable self-control and eventually get married. Now, don't get me wrong. When a boy reached puberty, there were some rules, only two. Number one, never, under any circumstances, no matter what, have sex with another man's wife. Remember, women's babies needed, we needed to know for sure they belonging to this freeborn man because we needed to know for sure that they were citizens of Rome and therefore they had the rights of citizens. The second rule was under no circumstances was a boy to be passive. And that meant at its most fundamental level in the high Roman Empire that a freeborn male should never be penetrated. The social code of manliness for a man was severe and unforgiving, as severe and unforgiving as the code of modesty for a woman. <laughs> so there were, to be clear, two entirely different sets of standards, set standards for sex. One for free men, the other for freeborn women. But that was less than half the population. Everyone else, more than half the population, slaves. For slaves, none of those rules applied. In fact, the entire approach to sex in the Greco-Roman world depended on the existence of slaves. The high Roman Empire in which Christianity was born was a slave society, chattel slavery. And the numbers are astronomical. Slaves were everywhere in the Roman Empire, and a slave's body had no legal or social protection. In the words of one of the foremost historians of ancient Roman slavery and sexuality, quote, domestic slaves were considered little more than furniture. Sex was a required domestic service. So slaves were subjected to untrammeled sexual abuse. The man of the house could use any slave male or female, child or adult, as a sexual receptacle 
any time he wanted to. A famous saying from Greece in the 4th century BC, so 400 years before this, but it gives uh, you a sense of the views of the Roman Empire at the time Christianity was born. This is a quote. We have courtesans for our pleasure, prostitutes for our daily bodily needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. That was a well-known saying. You see, one of the functions of slaves and prostitutes in the Roman world was that they prevented adultery by acting as a safety valve for male lust. The fundamental belief was that male sexual energy had to be expended. So in an empire saturated with the bodies of slaves, um, sex was readily available. And then there was the art, what we would call pornography, the graphic sex that you can find on Netflix and Hulu and porn sites on the internet. It was plastered on bathhouse walls, inside ordinary homes as decorations, wall paintings, these ubiquitous lamps with engravings and drawings. For instance, it was not uncommon to have pictures of men having sex with boys on water pitchers in the average household. Imagine that. In Caesar's name we pray. Amen. Mom, pass the water pitcher. All right. Now between that and the ever-present brothels and prostitution, historians tell us that no one could avoid seeing sexual depictions. No matter how promiscuous you think our modern culture is, it has nothing to compare to the, the world in which Christianity was born. What we call pornography, the Romans called decoration. Men, women, and children were surrounded by paintings, carvings, and actual acts of sexual activity for the entirety of their lives. So to summarize this awful history of sex in the high Roman Empire, Roman sexual morality was fundamentally about class and gender. If you were privileged, morality meant women had to be chaste and men had to exercise power and control. If you were not privileged, if you were more than half the population, if you were a slave, Roman sexual morality was not an option. If you weren't one of the lucky ones, you were exploited from an early age. And so the culture of Roman Corinth that Paul walked into in early AD 51 was geared to deliver sexual satisfaction to freeborn men cheaply and easily. And from archaeology and history, we know that even against the indulgent backdrop of late Roman sensibility, Corinth stood out, head and shoulders above everything else, as scandalous. This is the city Paul walks into. And it's within this chaotic atmosphere that we've got to learn to read all of these passages in the New Testament about sex. All of these passages, all of these early Christian converts, this is the world they grew up in. This is the world they knew. This is the morality that they were a part of. These are the people that Paul taught to walk 
in the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we turn to 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to these Christians a few years after he hobbled in there in AD 51, when we turn there, we see that sexual holiness isn't just a rule, an arbitrary commandment. It is fundamental to being a Christian. It's significant to what it means to turn from idols and serve the true and living God. It's part of being a genuine, image-bearing human being. And the actual details of what it meant to be sexually holy were developed from two fundamental concepts. One is positive and one is negative. The first one, the positive concept that produced Christian sexual morality was creation. If you'd brought along a copy of the Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By the way, are you freezing? Does anybody know what they're doing over there? Look at Katie. Katie, I will not confess that it was me who earlier messed with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Here is Paul talking about sexual sin, and at the center of his discussion, notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 6.16. As it is written, the two will become one flesh. And here we see Paul doing exactly what we looked at last week. He's following in Jesus' footsteps. And he's, when he's dealing with sex and he's trying to think through what makes sex right and what's wrong and what's good and what's get bad, he does exactly what we saw Jesus do last week. He goes back to creation. He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he roots Christian sexual morality in creation. The starting place for the Christian understanding of what is good and what is bad and what to do with this complicated thing, sexuality and gender, the starting place is not our experience or our intuition or our feelings or our friendships. Now, all of those things matter. All of those things are important. They're not the foundational starting point, though. The foundational starting point is God's original purpose for these things in creation. That's what we looked at last week. And we saw that the original purpose of sex was threefold. Unitive, procreative, and sacramental. Good and true and beautiful sex is for others. It's for the spouse, it's for the world, and it's for God. Good sex, we see, attends to the beloved. Not just in bed, but in the unified life together where both partners learn to die to self and to serve one another in love. And good sex points to our children. And good sex points us toward God. And think about how different this is than the view of sex in the Roman Empire when this was brought onto the scene. Think about how Christianity gives us a very different approach. In the Roman Empire, the presumption was that sex was an energy that had to be expended. Sex was sex. It was one instinctual need among others to be channeled into making good Roman citizens. Now, we spent last week focusing on this idea of sex with the grain of the universe, creation and sex. This week, we're turning to the second foundational element for Christian sexual morality, and that is not creation, but it's a concept called porneia. Porneia, it's a Greek word. I'm gonna translate it in just a minute. But it's important that we start with just the Greek word. 
If you've brought along a copy of the Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and notice verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. That's a quote from a Corinthian slogan. And then Paul is going to counteract that slogan. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, for porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Body's not meant for porneia. Now, this word porneia, it is just as important to the Christian view of sex as creation. The Christian view of sex rests on two foundations, creation and porneia. The word porneia is used 56 times in the New Testament. In most English versions, it's translated fornication or sexual immorality. But that is too weak. And in light of what I just pointed out about the city of Corinth, it's not surprising that the place in the New Testament to go in order to best understand what porneia is, is the letter to Corinth. This is the clearest place where porneia is developed and what it means in the Bible. And it happens over the course of three chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Where Paul is dealing with all sorts of issues regarding sexuality. And he constantly goes back to creation and he constantly develops the concept of porneia. Notice in chapter 5 verse 1. He begins his discussion by declaring... It is actually reported that there is porneia among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. Even Rome wouldn't put up with this. A man has his father's wife. So it seems that a man had begun to have a sexual relationship with his stepmother, probably widowed. But remember, girls got married starting around 12 years of age. And guys got married in their mid to late 20s. So these two are not that far apart. It's not about this massive power imbalance. What it's about is that in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, one form of incest is sex with a step-parent. Sex with your parent's spouse. Now, the Old Testament doesn't call that porneia, but by the time you get to the New Testament, the term porneia has expanded to cover any sexual relationship outside of a consensual sexual relationship between a man and a woman. In other words, porneia in the Bible is any sexual relationship in violation of the Old Testament law. So notice the next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 talking to these Corinthians, these Corinthian Christians. You are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? So from a Christian perspective, this particular relationship is intolerable. And so Paul chastises the Corinthians for tolerating the presence of this relationship. At the end of verse 2, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And down in verse 9, he reminds them that he had previously told them the same thing. I wrote you in my former letter not to associate with porneos, the people who are doing that. So what's going on here? Well, to understand why part of the Corinthian church is proud of a thing that from Paul's perspective is wrong, we need to turn to the next chapter, 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Here Paul is dealing with why the Corinthians were looking at this account of incest and saying, awesome. What, what was it about the Corinthian Christians that made them be like, yeah, this is a good thing? It came, the reason they decided it was okay, it came from two ideas. First of all, it's what people in Corinth had been raised to believe. Remember, Corinth was scandalous to the rest of the Romans. You see, these Christians had grown up with a life entrenched in sexual indulgence. We've got to remember where we started tonight. The traditional Roman attitude towards sex was for a free male moderation, but not denial. Sex was just sex. One instinctual need among others to be channeled in certain fundamental ways. In this society, it was expected that men would indulge their sexual desires with prostitutes, slaves, and others who lack social honor. So here's a church in Corinth that that's their background belief, okay? Just because they got saved doesn't mean their ethics changed, right? That, that's what they grew up with, okay? Secondly, something else triggered this thing where they could look at incest and say, great, the second thing was that triggered it is this. About five years before Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul had written another letter. He had written a letter to the church in Galatia. And he had boldly declared on another topic in another context, quote, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then at the monumental Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, the Gentile Christians were freed from the magnificently intricate regulations of the Jewish dietary code. So apparently, Christians in the church in Corinth grew up with this very sexually kind of promiscuous view. And secondly, they heard freedom. Christ gives us freedom. Don't be bound by rules. And so suddenly they put these things together, it seems, and they decide this should be celebrated. Paul's response is sharp. He stops this line of thinking in its track. And he shows that sexual morality is part of God's restoration of the entire cosmos. Look at the end of verse 13. Look at the last phrase in that verse. The body is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. The body is a temple. It's a place where God dwells. And so the stakes could not be any higher. Look at verse 18. Flee Pornea. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but, but the pornese sins into his own body. So pornea is an act of pollution in the sacred space of the Christian body. Chapter 7. Paul begins by quoting another Corinthian slogan. Here's the quote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? So there were two groups in this church. One group said, anything goes. The other group said, no, no sex. It's not good. Apparently, there is, in addition to the libertine segment, 
that interpreted the gospel of grace and freedom to mean a, a free man can have sex with prostitutes, with slaves, with boys, with his stepmother. In addition to that group in the church, there was another group who was taking the opposite view. Sex is bad. The body's a temple. Sex pollutes the temple. And Paul's response to this is just as sharp. No, he says, marriage is not porneia. In fact, Paul says there are only two kinds of sex, married sex and porneia. Good sex is sex in marriage between a husband and a wife that is oriented toward its united, procreative, and sacramental ends. All other sex is against the grain of the universe. All other sex is porneia. All sex beyond the marriage bed of a man and a woman is bad sex. This is sex that strains against the goodness God offers. And with this term porneia, God is telling us the truth about sex gone wrong. Porneia is disordered sex. It's sex contrary to God's good intention. So you see, in, in, in Christianity, sexual holiness isn't just a rule, an arbitrary commandment. It's part of what it means to turn from idols and to serve the true and living God. It's part of being a genuine image-bearing human being. Listen to what Paul wrote in another letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from porneia, all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. You can hear why he's having to be so clear in these passages, because remember the sexual ethic that they were all raised in, that they had all practiced. Before they converted. Sexual immorality, he's saying, rejects the power of the Spirit. We are saved by the grace of Jesus, which is poured out for us in the cross and the resurrection. And so our understanding of sex gone wrong can never be thought of as get sex right and then God will take you. We had a whole church. We had a dude sleeping with his stepmother. Paul didn't say he's not a Christian. Paul didn't say that, that, that this is, you can feel Paul recognizing that, that what it means to grow up in cultures that have different rules. He's trying, he's laboring to work with them. The order runs the other way. God the Father, because of what Christ has done, restores us to a right relationship with himself in the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit dwells in us, giving us the power to bear faithful witness in the world to what Christ has done. And part of bearing faithful witness in the world is shunning porneia. All right. Enough of a history lesson. Scooting forward 1,900 years. In 1954... Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story with the title, A Temple of the Holy Ghost. 
if you grew up in a church with the King James, and that just means Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Ghost. It's about a homely, strong-willed, precocious 12-year-old girl. One weekend, her two second cousins come to stay at her house. They're older, 14 years old. Their names are Joanne and Suzanne. But they both call themselves all weekend Temple One and Temple Two. Because at their Catholic boarding school, one of the nuns, Sister Perpetua, had told them as they left school that weekend to remember that each one of them is a temple of the Holy Ghost. So they left school calling each other Temple One and Temple Two. The nun told them, you're a temple of the Holy Ghost. You should behave yourselves with the boys. And they should even use that phrase, she said, to fend off any fresh young men in the back seats of cars. They should say, stop, sir. I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. Well, the cousins think that's hilarious because they're braver than you all. They laughed out loud. Y'all were afraid to do it. And they spend the weekend mocking the nun. But the 12-year-old girl doesn't think it's funny. She's actually deeply moved by the thought. The news that she is the dwelling place of God makes her feel as if she's a present. She came to see that her body was less like a plaything and more like a temple. That's what the early Christians learned. That's what shifted their sexual ethic. That's what changed them. They listened to what God was telling them through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and so they learned to flee sexual immorality. And here's the amazing thing. Over the course of 300 years, what started out as 120 people with that sexual ethic, that's a minority. Over the course of the next 300 years, this weird, exceptional view of sexuality played out among Christians in cities filled with endless allurements. For 300 years, the early Christians learned to protect the bodily integrity of slaves. The Christian men stopped raping their slaves. Christianity did that. Christianity brought that revolution to the Roman Empire. Christians learned to stop exploiting people based on class. Christians learned to reject all sex outside of marriage. They learned that sex was sacred, that sexual morality was integral to the Christian vision of redemption. They learned that the proclamation of the gospel was inseparable from sexual ethics. And they learned to live this out in an environment where their views of sex became the big divide between them and their neighbors. And they did that for 300 years. And then right under their nose, Rome changed. Kyle Harper, the outstanding historian of Roman antiquity, I referenced him earlier. On the first page of his book, published by Harvard. This is a serious academic book. The title of the book is From Shame to Sin. The subtitle is The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. 
on the first page of the book, he says that the transformation of the Roman world from polytheism to Christianity over the course of the first, second, and third centuries AD was one of the biggest changes in the history of the world. The Roman Empire went from being polytheistic to being Christian. He says this is one of the most sweeping transformations that has ever occurred in the history of the world. And he writes this, few periods of modern history have witnessed such brisk and consequential ideological change and the driving force of it all was sex. The Christians converted the Roman Empire through their sexual ethic. It was the center. Harper calls this the first great sexual revolution. By the fourth century, Roman emperors began to pass laws outlawing prostitution, outlawing coerced sex, laws supporting the better way of Christianity with its deep respect for all people, regardless of gender, class, or age. Now, let's wrap this up by seeing what, what does this mean for us today? We Christians find ourselves in an odd position these days. We're surrounded by a culture that has picked up so many of the values that Christianity brought to the world. The universal dignity of all individuals. The fundamental importance of freedom. Christianity brought this. And yet, the way our society holds these values are different than the way Christians hold them. For Christians, these values don't just come from anywhere. They're not just innate. They are derived from the story of God's creation and restoration of the world. As one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavink, he put it this way. The essence of Christianity is that the creation of the Father was ruined by sin. But it is restored in the death of the Son of God, and it is recreated by the grace of the Spirit of God into the kingdom of God. And this is the story within which we understand sex. It's within the larger story of the gospel and its picture of the created cosmos in the throes of restoration. In our secular age, we Christians here in the West, we're beginning to experience what the early church experienced when it came to sexuality. The differences between our view as Christians of sexual morality and that of the surrounding culture is really about the clash of worldviews. In fact, there is probably no greater clash between worldviews than the one between our culture's view of sex and Christianity's vision for sexual flourishing. In the early church, sexual morality was not baggage. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an accident. It was the plane on which Christians lived in the world, but not of the world. And so we must come to see our sexual lives as particular callings within God's mission. And we need to acknowledge and affirm that this is a heroic struggle. In our cultural context. And these Christian practices will feel alienating at times. And at times it will feel unbearable. But we can do this. Because the church has done it before. One last thing. 
And maybe the most important thing I've said all night. There are many ways that sex goes wrong. We are all sexually broken. All of us. Christians don't claim that to shame people. We don't claim that to try to police other people's bodies. We claim this to tell the truth about the world and to offer grace. Remember what we learned about sex in the days of the high Roman Empire. The lucky and the rich got protection and honor. The slaves got raped. Telling the truth was grace. And telling that gracious truth for 300 years saved people's lives. Sex with a prostitute in ancient Rome cost, on average, the price of a loaf of bread. Can you imagine how much work a prostitute had to do to pay her pimp and to survive? The, sex, the Christian sexual ethic is grace. Christianity came along, and in the kingdom of God, everybody's body is honored in Rome, bodies were for power or pleasure or the state or the market. In the kingdom of God, we are called to be chaste. None of our bodies are for sin. None of our bodies are for degrading. All of our bodies are for the Lord. And in Rome, if you were sexually shameful in Rome, there was no going back. But Jesus... He's building an upside-down kingdom where outcasts get their feet washed and the marginalized are welcomed and dehumanized people are rehumanized once again where truth is upheld and celebrated and proclaimed and where those who fall short of the truth come to the table. They're invited to the party. They're in the room. They're in the feast. They are given love. In God's kingdom, there is forgiveness and healing, and grace, and freedom. So if you've felt intense shame over your sexuality, or over your struggles, or over your sins, I hope that what I've said this afternoon hasn't fed any sense of your worthlessness. Instead, I hope that you can catch something of a vision that God offers a better story and I hope that you'll turn toward Jesus and I hope that you'll begin to see his mercy and his care and his love because getting to know God's love for you and learning to respond to him with love in return, that's the purpose of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for what you did in Rome. Thank you for your kindness. Help us to capture that love and that truth and that grace and that mercy again in our own lives, in our own day. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to transition. First of all, if you have questions for me, use these three cards on what I've just talked about. We're going to have a Q&A in a few minutes, and the first half of the Q&A is going to be about the lecture I just did on sexual morality. Now, I'm going to invite up my good friend, Dylan. You made it, Dylan. 
How was 81? <laughs> Come up, Dylan, and my daughter, Spencer, who I love so much. And um, they're going to come up, and we're going to talk together for about five or six or so minutes or seven minutes. And then if you have questions for us three, then y'all, you can write them on this card. And the second half of the Q&A, they'll come back up again, and uh, we'll go through those questions. So, Dylan, I told them, graduate from uh, JMU. JMU. Um, <laughs> All that kind of stuff, so they know about you. So, um, thank you so much, Dylan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, every. Oh, okay. Um, so my name is Dylan Krieger. My pronouns are he/him. Um, I'm not from Harrisonburg originally. I'm from a small town in southwest Virginia called Rural Retreat. Hence the really long drive up 81 to get back here in time. Um, so um, I'm, if you look at the sheet, I'm side B. Um, from my own personal convictions um, and from my own research into scripture, that's kind of where I've ended up. I've been kind of on the fence between um, side B or group B and um, group A. So I try to be very affirming of people from like wherever they're at because I've been on the fence for a long time. Um, a little bit about my growing up. Um, I never felt like I fit in with a lot of the, the boys that I grew up with in like elementary school. Um, and when I hit puberty is when I realized very quickly that I was attracted to men sexually and romantically and not, um, not women. Um, so I kept that a secret because I was raised in a Pentecostal holiness church, so a very charismatic church, basically a high-energy Southern Baptist church. <laughs> um, so I kept that a secret until I came to college. I first came out to my group of small, like, small group of Christian friends in college and then slowly came out to um, my parents, my brother, my sister, my friends, you guys now, um, but I'm not publicly out, especially back at home where I was raised. Um, so I'm prepared to for people to find out, though. So um, that's just a little bit about me, yeah. kind of where I come from. So thanks, Dylan. And Dylan next week is going to share a kind of longer story about what it was like growing up. This grandson of a pastor, his father was his youth pastor, and in more, more detail about all of that. This is Spencer, my oldest Hello. child. Well, She's really 21. Loud. She's our favorite, but the other four, well, they know that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, like my dad said, my name is Spencer. I am 21 years old. I identify as a queer woman. Um, we can get more into labels and terminology in the following weeks, but for now, that's just where we're going to leave it. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and just a little bit about myself. I have lived in Harrisonburg for most of my life, I think since like 2009 or 2010, 2010. Um, and I attended Incarnation since it was in my living room, in the cook's living room, um, in the little seven parking lots over near Matchbox. Um, 
And I, kind of similar to Dylan, I knew that I was gay from a young age, but I don't think saying knowing I was gay is the proper way to put it, just because I felt like something was different or I felt like something was off, but I didn't necessarily have the words to describe it or the sexual education to describe it. So I think as I, I was homeschooled until sixth grade, and then I went to Thomas Harrison and Harrisonburg High School. So as I moved up throughout school and kind of was exposed to more of the terminology and the queer world, I was able to find my sexual identity. And I came out to a couple of friends later on in high school pretty slowly, kind of kept it under wraps. And then after I moved out of my parents' house, I kind of slowly started coming out to other people, and then I came out to my mom and my dad in January, and then I came out publicly in June. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me and where I'm at. I would say that I identify with side A, although if you do read the paragraph, there's lots of nuance in there. So if anyone has any questions for me about that, I'd love to answer them. Thank you, Spencer. You guys are amazing. So much courage. Uh, so here, here's m why we're doing this. When we talk about sex, we're talking about concepts and people, real people. And Jesus held these two things together so well. He not only talked about truth, but he knew how to relate to people. And so when we're dealing with this really complicated issue, it's also really private and it's really sensitive. And we've got to learn how to hold grace and truth together. Truth as, uh, as, as what we believe God says about the world, but grace in the way we relate, you know? So um, I want our church to get so good at this. Um, I want our church to be courageous in the way we hold the historic Christian sexual ethic, and at the same time, be so welcoming and so loving. And I, Dylan and I have been talking about this, and Spencer and I have been talking about this, and we believe this is possible. We believe it's to be possible to be orthodox on sexual doctrine and incredibly compassionate and gracious. And one of the most important things for that to occur is for LGBTQ people in our church to be visible. That's absolutely important. Um, statistics say 2.9% of the adult U.S. population identifies as LGBTQ. But another 10 to 15% of the U.S. adult population have had an LGBTQ sexual experience. So you add those two things together, and then th that's 15, 13 to 18% of the population. That's a lot. And then when you add in all of the people who love these people, their friends, their family, their parents, their grandparents, when you add in together all of those of us who work with LGBT sexual and gender minorities, the church needs to lead the way in love and grace and mercy. And it's so complicated. So Dylan and Spencer, we've decided instead of like spending an entire evening talking with them, we're going to do like a drip campaign. 
Tonight, just introduce you to them. Next week, Dylan's going to tell more of his story as a part of, of my lecture. The following week, Spencer's going to tell more of her story. And every week, they'll be with us for Q&A. All right? Thank you so much, guys. Y'all are amazing. So y'all can go on down. And y'all take that with you because... So for the next 10 minutes, write questions about the lecture on sexual immorality, um, the stuff that I went over, or for me, uh, Dylan or Spencer, then you're going to turn those in to some people who are going to go around and collect them, and then they're going to ask for the first half questions of me about the lecture, then we'll invite Spencer and Dylan back up, and we'll ask, give you a chance to ask questions of them. Thank you, guys. Thanks for these amazing questions, <laughs> I'm sure, that we'll see in just a bit. So like I said, we're going to spend the first half uh, looking for questions on the lectures. Are y'all ready? Who's going first? All right, come on. This is Bob Brown. Thank you, Bob. Oh. It's a historical question, so it might be a little tough to answer. Here's the question. Uh, what happened to the profound reversal uh, of used slaves given protection by rape through the gospel uh, proclamation of dignity? What happened to that profound reversal from antiquity uh, forward to the American antebellum abuse of slaves in the same way about Christians? That's exactly right, yeah. Slave societies, the dark, I mean, there's so many dark sides to it, but the that's part of it. Um, I'm not a historian of the American slave system. It was chattel slavery, and it's rife with those abuses. But I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Can you, Bob? I mean, you, your, your PhD is in like uh, 18th century uh, Christianity in America. You're this is not a historical answer. It's a historical speculation. But systems of power always invite abuse by Christians as much as by anybody else. So if it's slavery, Christian who owned slaves, uh, abuse of slaves, I mean, if you think of Christians in Europe and how they treated Jews or uh, how they supported the you know, Nazis, I mean, there's lots of ways that Christians can be uh, seduced into power systems yeah. that make them violate their own uh, moralities. Do you think, Bob, one, one answer to this is it became illegal in the Roman Empire, eventually. Um, I don't know, do you know, American slavery, I know, had gross sexual abuse within it. Is that different if there's a, at least a, a public societal disapproval of it, or is that me, like, skirting the issue? Uh, I don't think it's different, and actually, uh, American uh, race, racial slavery uh, replicated a lot of the attitudes of Roman slavery in that for a very long period of time, uh, slaves in American slavery were considered property, not people. And so yeah. you, can, you can do what you want with a chair, right? And yeah. so you treated a slave like a piece of furniture, and you could do what you want yeah. to do with it. So I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. So very good. More, more of those kinds.
question is, how does the church avoid the Roman masculine goal of domination and control? Oh, wow. That's really good. Sure. The question was, how does the church avoid the Roman goal of masculine domination and control? I don't, these are questions I don't know the answer to. Um, I, what do you think, Joanna? <laughs> uh, You've been a part of the church. Be like Jesus? <laughs> I don't know. I think you should answer it. <laughs> I, I do think that the church is, is doing some remarkable things. I know that there are these terrible stories happening, but I've, I've also been a part of churches that are really fighting against that. that. I, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not prepared to give a kind of a, a thoughtful answer that can go out into the ether of the internet on that. We should quit it, is what I want to say. Why do we have such a reliance on the Old Testament views of pornea and sex and right or wrong when God's story is progressing? So in heaven, no male and female, and Jesus shows us that the two commandments are supreme commandments. So why do we still hold to the Old Testament views of pornea and sex? Yeah. So actually... There are a lot of things in the Old Testament that go flat straight across to the New Testament. There's not a progression. Murder is not a progression. Um, lots of things. Pornea is one of them. That's why I spent so much time in the New Testament showing that the New Testament is picking up Leviticus 18 and saying, still stands. Jesus made that move. Paul made that move. Um, the, the view of sexual ethics in the Bible is a flat line. It, it doesn't you can see it in the Old Testament. You can see it in the New Testament. Next week, we, we will talk about, um, I'm going to switch the order. Next week, I am going to deal with same-sex attraction. The week after that, we'll deal with gender. And these kind of relationships to it, are, they're, they're flat. This is not progressing. There are some things that do progress from the Old to New Testament, but there's, this is not one of them. So, in fact, I did not... Um, double down on the Old Testament. I, I spent almost the entire lecture rooted in the New Testament relationship to the Old Testament where it picks this up and it holds it. Okay. I'm going to cheat Aubrey and ask you two, two questions. One's real quick, I think. Uh, was the shift to Christianity under Constantine? Well, the culmination of it was the like the culminating moment. Constantine declared the Roman Empire Christian, um, but it was playing out. I mean, it had a lot of work to do to get from 120 people to dominating the Roman Empire. Yeah. And then uh, the second question is, how do you see the Roman sensibilities regarding sex um, manifested today? Do you see it manifested today? You've kind of talked about the sexual revolution and other things. Are there connections there? Yeah. Is what I, we see today distinct and different from that? I, I, well, it's tricky. The Western civilization 
is the flowering of Christianity. Where we are right now in Western civilization, though, is that we want the fruit without the root. So we want things like human dignity. That came from Christianity. Christianity brought prison reform. It brought universal literacy. It brought universal health care. I mean, for a lot of time, in a lot of the world, the only people who could have a doctor were the wealthy. Christianity kind of universalizes it. Uh, deacons invented hospitals. Christianity brings all of these things. And so much of Western culture is the flowering of that. But now Western culture is wanting to hold these fruits by cutting off the root, though. The kind of where this grew out of. And there are ways that we're reverting back. I think that this idea that sex is this atavistic impulse that has to, I mean, we still have this kind of good old boy view. Didn't you hear in some of the ways I was talking about men in the Roman Empire? Didn't it feel a little bit the way we have a double standard today with guys in college? And there's no word in the English language for a male slut. Right? There's no, just like there was no word for a male virgin in the Greek um, and Latin language, there's no negative attacking word for a promiscuous male. That's just a carryover. And, and I, that, boy, I hope that didn't get taken out of context. That's a harsh, terrible word to call any woman. Um, so I think that's one of the ways. I think that, um, there's been a lot of fascinating research done on the ways in which the abortion culture has tyrannized the poor. There are many ways in which, I just read an article, I think it was in The Guardian, on sexual Thatcherism, and it's the way that our kind of, Margaret Thatcher's radical free market economics, the way that um, casual sex is rooted in the marketplace, and it's, it's harming women. So I think there's a lot of these ways that we, we use the word puritanical as a way of throwing out sexual kind of um, boundaries, and it's opening a doorway into which, like I did in my lecture several weeks ago, where the least of these, the, poor, the most vulnerable and fragile, are getting harmed. I think some of that is reverting back. Yeah. What, do, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think uh, when I was at JMU, I heard my own colleagues talk about the behaviors of college students and just say that it's not, the, the presumption was that that's just always, that's what it's going to be, and you can't stem the tide of uh, the sexual uh, drives and everything else, and so why, why do that? Well, that's, that's a silly thing to even think of doing. It's sort of beyond, off the radar screen as even a possible and, and so in my lecture several weeks ago on freedom, I pointed out that now, just like then, men are the beneficiaries and women are the victims of that. And that, that is a terrible thing. And it's coming out. The, the data is coming out. Yeah. I think we're going to turn okay. to some questions on yes, uh, let's for you do and that. Dylan and Spencer. Okay. Uh, Dylan and Spencer, you guys, come on back up here. And let, let me say, while they're coming up, you guys can have your seat. So my lecture is in the form of a manuscript, 
and all the footnotes are there, and I'm going to talk about some books in a bit. And it's posted on our website uh, over the course of this week. So if you're interested in thinking more about some of these issues, that manuscript will be there. Also, at the end of tonight, I'm going to give away a free book that I've got multiple copies of that has to do with some of this. And if anybody is nerdy enough to want the manuscript, you can have that. So, right, oh, actually, i got to keep part of it. Okay, so you guys, what are your questions? Who's coming? Joanna's coming. Um, hi. So this is kind of a twofold question. Um, so the first half of it is, um, what experiences have been meaningful to you in a positive way in regard to the church and your sexual identity? And then how can the church be more supportive and loving to young people wrestling with questions about sexuality? Oh, that's really good. So. A po some positive a experiences, positive, yeah, what has and how helped. can we be more? Mm -hmm. Which one of you guys wants to take a run at it? You want to start, Spencer? Yeah, so I can hit on the positive experience. Um, first of all, this is a super positive experience. Um, I think for all of us, this can be really uncomfortable to talk about, um, equally as uncomfortable for you guys as it is for myself and Dylan, so just seeing everyone come out and being willing to listen and learn is a great positive. Also, there's a lot of stuff going on in the side B world of Christianity right now, and there's lots of conferences and resources that church leadership and pastors are kind of pushing out to their congregations, and so that's something that's super positive. Um, for me, a really positive experience was realizing that even though this is something that I struggle with um, and that I feel like I can't change, that I can still add value as, um, as a Christian in the body of Christ. Um, a big moment for me was when I came out to my small group friends at college. Um, one of them came up to me afterwards and said, man, like, there's a part of me that sees like so much value in that. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was taken aback by this. I was like, I just told you that I'm not attracted to women. Um, and he was like, yeah, he said, but my issue is that I feel like I have to control and like restrain myself when I'm around women. Like, it's hard for me to just be friends with women. He's like, but you don't have that problem. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> So, like, finding those things that, like, people who deal with same-sex attraction, that they can still contribute to the body of Christ, I think has been really positive for me. And that's something that we can also do as a church to, like, help people who deal with this kind of stuff, um, is to help them see that, like, I mean, yes, we're all broken, but also, like, we all have, like, the power of Christ in us. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, in that we're able to like work and do and fulfill the gospel. So I'll let you keep holding that. Okay. Yeah, the second half of it was, and sorry, I guess this is two for one, but um, how could the church be more supportive to young people wrestling with questions about sexuality? Can we say not just young people? Though? Anybody. That's it, yeah. <laughs> or do you want to focus on young people? I think, I think we could okay. open it up. Is there something the church can get better at, can be more supportive and more helpful? Um, like I just said, like helping 
people see the value that um, a same-sex attracted Christian can give to the body of Christ, because um, there is value in that. Um, that's a huge thing. Um, but also, um, just continuing to love and accept them. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, kind of like Spencer said, this stuff is really hard for us to talk about. Um, but if we approach it not from, like, a, we need to figure out what's right, but, like, just trying to understand one another, um, that facilitates much more meaningful conversation, I think, than just trying to figure out, like, um, what is the morally correct thing, so. Spencer, you have anything to add? Yeah, I think something else that would be helpful from the church community, um, and I've even had to do this, like, this is not a straight person thing or a gay person thing, this is just an everybody thing, um, is when you think about someone being gay or if you think about someone being homosexual, really trying to separate gay sex from being gay. Because if we can really work on breaking down that kind of wall in our heads, I guess, of when you hear the word gay, you automatically think about homoerotic sex. Um, so I think just kind yeah. of breaking that down and yeah. letting it, I don't know what the correct word is. That's really good. Letting it not be our main focus is really important um, when learning about all of this kind of stuff. The word gay is being used... Language is fluid. Language changes. I've talked a lot about this. The word hussy, when Shakespeare wrote his plays, meant housewife. So, Nate, how's your hussy? Right? <laughs> now, I don't get to say to Nate, after he punches me, etymological superiority. You know, originally the word meant. The word gay is changing. And you don't get to ob object to that. All right? The word gay means a lot more than gay sex. It means I share experiences with the community that a part of their, their origin story are the riots at Stonewall in 1969. I share, I share uh, a sense of being a minority with a group of people. When I walk in the room, like think about how much courage it takes for them to sit here. Uh, the sheer amount of courage. And that's a shared experience that they have with each other and other gay people. And so when gay people are saying, I'm gay, they're not saying, here's what I'm doing tomorrow night. That would be like when I meet you, so are you straight or not? And then I immediately think you're having sex tonight or something like that. Like being straight is a lot more than having sex and being gay is a lot more than having sex. And it's so hard to change that. It's so hard. And one of the key ways to change that is to develop a friendship with somebody who's LGBTQ. And that's why we're doing a drip campaign instead of um, all one night so that you, you can be comfortable um, asking these kind of questions. All right, thank you. Uh, this, I guess, maybe plays a little bit, maybe you can uh, elaborate some on some of the things that all three of you were just talking about. Now, by the way, I wanna say, I, I really would love for us to explore what uh, folks with your experience can bring to enrich our experience. I think that would be really, really helpful for us to think about that. Um, hopefully that'll come later. Can, uh, can I just say, Mike, yeah. I believe that heterosexuality 
means good and bad things, right? If my 12-year-old son says, Dad, I'm heterosexual, I'm going to say, oh, boy, this is going to be a difficult journey over the next few years. <laughs> if my son says, Dad, I'm gay, I should think the exact same thing, that our goal is to learn to give and receive love in faithful ways, and you have gifts to bring the church. I think when we stretch the word gay out to be more than gay sex, there are heterosexual gifts and there are gay gifts to the church when you use it in that big way. And I think Mike's question is right on the money. And because the evangelical church doesn't have a visible LGBTQ community, there are gifts we are not receiving. So uh, I just picked a different question based on, based on that. <laughs> Uh, here's someone wrote this, and uh, you can uh, sort of filter to the, the way it's being asked. But uh, I don't understand what side A means by saying God intentionally created queer people to have sexual attractions to the same sex. Can you explain this? So there's a couple of things there. I don't know what side A means, but the other is probably maybe the more core thing is uh, what are we are we saying? God created queer people to have sexual attractions to the same sex. You know, so. Sorry, I need to use my cheat sheet. Um, so the first part of the question was like, what is side what A, is side essentially? A, sure. So keep in mind, every single person is going to have very specific beliefs in each of these groups of people. So what I'm saying side A means to me could be totally different to someone else in the audience who also is side A. For me personally, I believe that Jesus Christ was born and was crucified. I believe in, um, what is the prayer? The Apostles' Creed. So I believe all of those things, um, but I have I guess you could say rejected the parts of the Bible that talk about homosexuality in relations to sex and marriage and interpersonal relationships. So I do not think that Jesus Christ condemns homosexual relationships, um, and I don't think that it is a sin. So that's my belief. Um, some people on side A have different beliefs, but that's just kind of where I'm at right now. So side A are the Christians who say that God approves same-sex sex. That's side A. By the way, um, this, the homosexual community created this language. And it's a way of identifying how different Christians think because it's so nuanced. Um, side X, this 40-year failed experiment, said... If you're gay, the goal is to cure you. So the goal is to deal with anybody who's same-sex attracted and say, okay, let's pray the gay away. And we turn people into projects. Um, side B and side Y are kind of in between these two. So, yeah, think side A, the progressive church. Does that answer the question? Well, part or? of it. Then the, the other part of it was... Help me understand how God would intentionally create queer people to have sexual attraction to the same sex. So, so I, I'm going to talk about a biblical theology of same-sex attraction next Sunday. 
and I'm going to deal with the way people on side A argue that case from the Bible or against the Bible. So let's save that okay. one for then. That's good. I think. Yeah, let's let's take one or two more. Okay. So Spencer and Dylan have, can talk more. So this would be a question for uh, Dylan and Spencer. Uh, uh, did growing up in a pastoral household, are there ways that this made it more difficult for you to address your sexuality, or were there ways that it made it, I don't know if easier is the right word, but uh, more helpful uh, to address your sexuality? That's a really good question. Um, so, for me, there's kind of a distinguishing difference between the experiences I feel like I've had with um, my grandparents um, since my granddad is the pastor of the church and the experiences I've had with my dad, who was the youth pastor. Because um, essentially growing up in the church, I've seen how they have responded to any person who's come through that church and has come out as gay or lesbian or whatever identity they choose. So me seeing their reactions speaks a lot to me about how they would treat me. Um, so there were some positives and there were some negatives. Um, does, that, when, That's good. does that answer the question? You think it made it more difficult being a preacher's kid kind of thing or? Um, Did it change it, you think, than somebody else's experience? I don't, I don't know that it made anything any more difficult in terms of, like, seeing people's responses, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, I guess for me also, faith was such a big part of my life that I was always wrestling with how to, like, um, like connect these two things. Like, how do they fit together? Um, whereas I feel like maybe other people might not always have the pressure to like find a way to make those two things work. But I think I think part of the question is pastors' families are often in a fishbowl and they're kind of put up on a pedestal, right? Because everybody sort of worships the pastor, and so I think part of the question is does that make it more difficult, or is there some ways that that's helpful? Well, this is good for Spencer because this is the church you grew up in. Hello, fishbowl. <laughs> Um, I think that it did make it really difficult in some ways. Um, just knowing a lot of the families in this church for such a significant period of most of my life at this point um, and knowing kind of the Orthodox Church's stance on homosexuality made it really, really difficult. And then another layer on top of that is my dad is the senior pastor, senior priest here. So I think most of my anxiety around coming out when in relation to the church kind of stemmed from me worrying that it would affect my dad's job or um, cause attendance levels to change or funding to change or anything like that, which I don't think that would actually happen. Um, but I think that that's something that was pretty pressing on my mind and just thinking about the reaction from the congregation just because my family is very deeply involved in the church. Spencer, if, if we had done this when you were 12, 13, 14, if you were sitting there and I was having this, would that have helped? 
yes, I think I probably would have come out like se five to seven years earlier, probably. Okay. One more or none? If we have a good one? All right. And then we'll finish. Um, so this is for Dylan or Spencer or both. Um, the question is, do you think it's possible for Christians who uphold a traditional sexual ethic to be viewed by the larger LGBTQ population as anything other than bigoted and hateful? And there's an acknowledgement that, um, that, we've, that Christians have largely failed in the area of being careful and intentional about how they mm. um, relate, but, but kind of feeling like, is there a possibility um, for there to be... Um, yeah, for, is, is the idea like you either support me or you hate me? Or is there a middle ground where mm. you believe the LGBTQ community could feel we disagree, but mm. I feel cared for or accepted? I think that that's a, that's a really good question and it's a really hard question to answer, so I'll try to answer super quickly so that Dylan can also give his input. Um, I think if we're talking about the more liberal group of people in general, it's probably going to be hard for them to understand that side B Christians are happy and that they're not being brainwashed or they're not being forced any into anything that they don't want to. But I think that a lot of liberal people that I know are very open-minded when it comes to listening to other people's beliefs. And so I think that if we had more discussions around side B, side A, side X, side Y, and kind of talked about it more, there would be more acceptance, but I think that it will probably take a while. I definitely think it's gonna be an uphill climb, because um, I know, um, maybe not even from my experience, but from a lot of my um, queer friends, um, they've been really, really hurt by the church. Um, so it's really, really hard for them to like open themselves up to those kinds of relationships again. Um, so I think it, we can do it, um, kind of like with these kinds of conversations. Um, but like, I just feel like it's gonna be an uphill climb, so. Um. The last national survey done of the adult LGBTQ population in America, 84% was raised in the church. 51% expressed a desire to return to the church. That means tomorrow's LGBTQ community is in the church today. And so if we can do this now, you know, Spencer said she's side A. And Dylan is side B. And Spencer and I have had lots of conversations about this. And we're trying to model. <laughs> and it's been very hard. Um, Spencer's been so difficult. <laughs> no. But we're trying to model that, that this can happen. So thank you all very much. Let's give them a hand. Oh, Dylan. I just want to add, like, one last thing. Like... The, what's made this super helpful is that like when I was growing up through the church, I didn't have this kind of language. Um, so I was trying to find this like side B group um, 
but didn't have the language to know how to like explain that. So um, like this kind of language actually really helps us identify like the people that um, we can relate to and create better conversations. So yeah, thank you. Let's give them a hand, and then I've got an announcement. So thank you. Yep. Thanks so much. Okay. I know we've gone over, but I just want to, a couple of other things. Uh, if you are interested, this is something I, I do each night. So if you're interested in the whole topic of sexuality in the, early high, in the high Roman Empire, here are the three big books, uh, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. You can't have it, but you can look at it. Um, slavery in the Late Roman World, and then the body and society, men, women, and sexual renunciation in early Christian literature. These are the three maybe most significant books on that stuff I was talking about. All right, next. I accidentally bought two of this book, and it's such a good book. The Church and Same-Sex Attraction, written by a gay Christian man in England who doesn't like the language. He's side why. He rejects the language of gay Christian. He says he's same-sex attracted. And it's called The Plausibility Problem, The Church and Same Set. And it's excellent. If you will read it, you can have it. If you're just one of those people who puts books in your house and doesn't read them, well, then you know where you're going. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Lastly, I'm, I'm joking. Lastly, um, the most help Janelle and I have gotten in learning to listen to Spencer. You cannot love without listening. To love is to listen. And like they said, when Spencer says queer, she means a thing by it that you probably don't know, right? These terms are important. So the, the material that's been most helpful to us is this material. And this is the little version. This is the big version. It's the same thing. Guiding families of LGBTQ loved ones for every pastor and parent and all who care. So if you love someone or you anticipate you ever will, then here's the big one is called the same thing, expanded edition. It's got lots of pictures in it. So it's like a, it's so helpful. What to not say when your loved one comes out? What to not say the second time you talk to them? Um, what have they been going through since they were a child? This is so, so good. So those two things. And then lastly, if you're interested in this stuff about the, the, the Christian sexual revolution 2,000 years ago, this is a condensation of these books written by the author of them. It's like a 10-page essay, article, journal article. And I printed out about 15 copies. You can come have one of those. And very end, tomorrow, next week, I'm switching the order. I'm going to talk next week, Space at the Table, Homosexuality and Christian Faithfulness. The following week, I'll then deal with gender and the trans kind of conversation. Um, Spencer and Dylan, thank you all so much. You are so brave, so brave. Good night. <laughs>